Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. As a congressman from Georgia and in his brief tenure as Secretary of Health and Human Services for Donald Trump, Tom Price developed a reputation as the stoutest of critics of government health care programs and the Affordable Care Act. So as you can imagine, we had plenty to talk about when he came by the Institute of Politics last week. We did find one thing we could agree on right at the very beginning. Baseball. Tom Price, welcome. Uh, welcome to the Institute of Politics, and good to have you here. You know, everybody thinks of you as a Georgian for good yeah. reason, but I discover that you're a good old Midwesterner. <laughs> good stock, good Midwestern stock. Thanks, David. Wonderful to be with you, and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity, and, and thank you for all the service that, uh, that, thank that, you. that you've brought to our thank country. Thank you. Back at you. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm a Midwest Mich- Michigan boy, uh, born and raised uh, in Michigan. Uh, my my dad was uh, from Ohio. My mom was from Virginia, southwestern Virginia, um, and uh, those are my southern roots. I'm the middle of five, and so uh, where um, Michigan? Uh, born in Lansing, raised outside of Detroit, mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, and and wasn't very fond of the cold weather even as a kid. And so I remember distinctly. At least my mom told me she's passed, but my mom used to tell me that at the age of six, I announced to her that there wasn't any reason that we lived here. We ought to live in Virginia. So uh, <laughs> uh, when I could make my first independent decision, it was where I did my medical residency, residency, you, orthopedic surgery residency. But but medicine yeah. was not necessarily an independent decision, right? You came from a long well, line of doctors. It was after I realized that I couldn't play shortstop for the Detroit Tigers. Yes, that was, but I, and, that, I, and that came at a very early age. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that too, by the way. I, the, uh, you know, I grew up in New York. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks of me as a Chicago, and I grew up in New York. And I, in 69, I was there in the Mets improbably won yes. the World Series. But yeah. you were uh, you were closely associated with the, the year before when the Tigers, Tigers beat the beat Cardinals. The, yeah, in seven, in that wonderful seventh game in, in St. Louis. Yeah, I, uh, was, I loved baseball. It was probably the only sport that I had any proficiency in, and that was likely why I loved it. But uh, um, we went to uh, um, game after game after game at the old Tiger Stadium uh, down in Michigan and Trumbull. Um, went and, with your dad? Uh, went with my dad to almost every opening day, uh, but this was at a time when we would just hop on the uh-huh, bus and yeah. go down to the game. Yeah. And, and uh, so I had a paper route uh, at that age. I was 14 uh, uh, years old in 1968, and, and uh, um, uh, so I got tickets to the, the third, fourth, and fifth game were uh, in, in Detroit, and the sixth and seventh games were in, in St. Louis. I went to third, fourth, and fifth game um, uh, with all – uh, scalp tickets right outside the stadium, um, and uh, when the and we were the Tigers were down three to one. As you yes, may I recall, remember. Those yeah, baseball fans in your audience, and so when we came back, uh, I announced to my mom um, that I was going to St. Louis to see the seventh game, 
and she said that that was a crazy idea, that um, uh, how was I going to get there and how was I going to pay for it and all that. And I had devised this whole plan about how I was going to fly to St. Louis and stay with an uncle that I'd never met. Um, and, uh, um, and, Man, and you were a hardcore fan. Go to the game. Oh, absolutely. The thing that I didn't, and so I did. I went to the game. But the thing I didn't appreciate is that there wouldn't be any Tiger fans in the in the yeah in the crowd. It's a little lonely. <laughs> I've done this. It's a little lonely so when a, you're in the opposition park. But what a game, uh, oh, Mickey Lolich yeah, and, and Bob yeah, Gibson. Yeah, huh? exactly. It was wonderful. It was an incredible game. But I was the only one cheering uh, early on and and uh, and I remember thinking this isn't a very wise idea to be a 14 year old kid in the uh, crowd. especially when your team wins <laughs> I've right. been in the arena when my team lost a seventh game yeah. but it's it's not good when you yeah. you win all of a sudden people aren't as friendly yeah so I we've trans I've transferred that now to uh, to Atlanta and uh, I actually became um, uh, very frustrated with the American League when they put in the designated hitter mm-hmm. I thought that was Kind of a bastardization of baseball, and so I became a National League fan, and uh, um, and then so going to Atlanta and picking up uh, my uh, my wonderful support for the Braves, where uh, uh, my wife and I are season ticket holders for the Braves, and we've been to more games than we care to admit. Well, as an orthopedic surgeon, you have you treated any of them? Have you? I treated uh, some of their uh, some of their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they the, the the professional teams, as you know, have a uh, um, have a, yeah, a, they a have professional their, yeah. group, and so I would uh, treat some of their family. Um, so, so let me ask you about about medicine, yeah. though. Uh, your your grandfather was a doctor, mm-hmm. a family doctor, so he would go to people's homes and he uh, my grandfather graduated medical school in 1908 from Case Western, which which was then Case University. Um, so in 1908, you, you, you were just a doc. Um, and my first memories of medicine were with him. I would, uh, uh, when I was a kid, uh, as I mentioned, I'm the middle of five. I was the only one who showed any interest in medicine. And when I was a kid, I would go uh, on rounds with him to see patients on, on, on the weekend sometimes. And that meant getting in your car and driving to people's homes. And I'll, uh, I, I really believe that it was, it was probably the, when, when the importance of the physician-patient relationship was grilled into my core because when we would go to these homes, um, we'd, and I remember thinking as an 8- or 9- or 10-year-old kid, why are we, why are we doing this? I'm, I'm here to be with, with Granddad, right? Uh, he was a bigger-than-life guy. Um, but we'd go to these homes, and, and in, inevitably my memory, my childhood memory, is that they would, We'd go and knock on the door, and they'd come to the door, and instead of saying, you know, who are you, what do you want, the door would fling open, and they'd say, oh, Dr. Price, welcome, and they'd give him a big hug. And I, th- and, and I remember thinking, this, this is something special going on here. If, if you go to people's homes and they open the door and give you hugs, that's probably a pretty good thing to be involved in. Yeah, so, and he would treat, treat people, sometimes tr- people yeah. seriously in oh, need yeah. of yeah, he, he, and this was in a rural. Was this was in Toledo, mm-hmm. Toledo, Ohio. So he, but he treated in a, you know, in a, in a, in a large area. So I don't, I, I was too young to remember exactly where we were going. But, mm-hmm. uh, um, but he, he practiced medicine until he was ninety-four years old. Died at the age of ninety-eight, but practiced medicine until he was ninety-four. This is a pretty good advertisement for his doctor, whoever <laughs> that was. I think it was all physician heal thyself at that time. So, <laughs> uh, and your dad, he started off as a, a farmer as a farmer. and became 
Yeah, a, he, a physician. He kind of rebelled when he he was uh, uh, when he was a kid. He 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 knew he knew that he loved medicine because his because of his father. But he uh, um, his summers as a child were spent with an uncle on a farm in Hillsdale, Michigan, outside of Hillsdale, Michigan. Um, and he loved that. And so after he got back uh, from the war uh, in in uh, World War II, uh, he was uh, going to Michigan State. He had his, uh, his um, education interrupted, and he came back and, and got an ag degree at Michigan State. He was one of the first individuals with an ag degree uh, in Fowlerville, Michigan. I grew up in Fowlerville. Uh, and he got a dairy farm, uh, started a dairy farm, uh, and, and uh, tried uh, that out for 11 years, broke his back literally, and his pocket. That's hard work. That's hard work, hard work. We had 250 head, 250 acres, uh, uh, and it was, um, I mean, it was idyllic. I remember, you know, those wonderful days of running around the farm and i was too young to have too much responsibility but that's i remember the best deal yeah that's right bringing in the chickens or bringing in the cows so and then uh and so that he then he went back to medical he school. went back to medical school at the age of 36 mm-hmm. uh, went to wayne state university at the age of 36 and and um uh, came out uh, and thought he was going to uh, uh, be a primary care doctor thought he was going to practice internal medicine uh, at that time, you could just do an internship, and because of his age, that's that's all he did. He had five kids at that point, mm-hmm. and uh, practiced for uh, joined a, a fellow in suburban Detroit, and and practiced for a year, and didn't like it at all. And so he started one of the first um, professional uh, group, uh, emergency room physician groups in the state of Michigan. Was one of the founding members of the American College of Emergency Physicians. And so I, again, when I was a, when I, when I was a kid, I would go. Other kids would be doing other things. I'd be going to the emergency room after school to 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 watch my dad and see what was going on. So, what did you learn about medicine from all of this hanging around? Yeah, uh, as I mentioned, I I, I learned a, a an incredibly deep um, respect for uh, the relationship between patients and physicians, um, and the importance of the physician being the primary advocate for the patient. Um, I learned a a, uh, um, a a compassion for individuals that is is just important, regardless of who they are, where they come from, or what their problem is, and the importance of of uh, doing all that you can to uh, to help. Um, and uh, it was um, uh, it, it was a wonderful experience as a kid. Uh, you know, if you're uh, and we'll. As we move along here, obviously, I want to talk about healthcare today yeah. and your role in it and your vision of it and uh, and some of the controversies about it. But if your dad was a uh, uh, deeply involved in emergency room care, I, I don't know what the situation was uh, back in that day. You know, one of the big concerns that you know I hear now is that you know people walk into the emergency room and they get treated hmm. because we're not going to let people die. Sure. Uh, and uh, there's an awful lot of uncompensated care that puts an enormous burden on hospitals. Yeah. Um, that's a seems like a big a big concern, and maybe not the best way to deliver care. Yeah, it's one of the most expensive ways now to to deliver care through through the emergency room, and often and many individuals continue to use the emergency room as their primary care doctor or their their entree to the healthcare system and and uh, so there are a lot of things and and I know that we'll talk about our system I suspect but the, there are a lot of things that, that there are flaws within within the system itself and that's one of them where people feel or uh, or actually 
don't have any other entree into the system except for going to the emergency room. And so there are a number of things that, 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 that we could do to be helpful. But, but again, the, the, the physicians on the front lines and the people taking care of folks in the emergency rooms, their job isn't to sort that out. Their job is to of just course, take yeah. care of people. And that's, that was, that whether was they have, whether they have insurance or sure. not, or absolutely. Uh, so you do, you decided to be uh, you, you you picked out a specialty yeah. orthopedics. Well, I, I actually um, I was accepted into um, an accelerated pre medical medical program at the University of Michigan. Uh-huh. It was the first year in 1972 when I graduated from high school, um, and it was a six year program and the the uh, uh, where they would take 50 kids right out of high school and and accept them to medical school basically, and you did an accelerated. So you basically made that decision. I did as a high school kid yeah, that you were going to be a doctor. Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was uh, this was a path that that allowed me to do it more rapidly. I was a uh, I was a I was a kid in a hurry, um, and uh, um, and and uh, so went through that that program. Finished uh, at the University of Michigan in 1979, and I was going to be I wanted to be a uh, a, a trauma surgeon. Um, so when I interviewed for my um, uh, residency program, I interviewed uh, uh, starting in Richmond South. I, I was true to my word to myself, and that uh-huh. was that as soon as I could make that first independent decision, I was going south. Um, and so I interviewed at Richmond and, and Chapel Hill and Duke and, and uh, Emory Grady in, in, in yeah, Atlanta yeah. and Gainesville in Florida, Charity Hospital in, in New Orleans and uh, Galveston, Texas. I think those were all the, all the places that I interviewed. Uh, but I, I really wanted to go to Emory and to Grady because of the, uh, the level one, what's now called level one trauma center, uh, a Grady Memorial Hospital where, where they were just seeing uh, um, a remarkable volume of, of, of trauma. Um, it was a great, a great place to train, and uh, I, I enjoyed uh, every minute of it. In hindsight, at the moment, I'm not sure that I enjoyed every moment of it, but uh, but it was a wonderful place. But in my senior year of medical school, after the match, which is in March, March 15th was our match. Um, I, I took a, a one month rotation in orthopedics, um, and and uh, and just fell in love with it. Why? Uh, it, um, it allowed it, orthopedics is one of the few specialties in medicine where you treat virtually the entire population. So you treat little, uh, you treat newborns uh, with hip dysplasia or with with uh, uh, with Herb's palsy or, or 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 problems from from birth trauma. Those are ortho, many of those are orthopedic challenges. You treat club feet in kids. You treat broken bones in all ages. You treat uh, um, all all folks across the the spectrum of society. And most folks uh, uh, from a type A surgeon's personality. Most folks that you treat, if you do the right thing, they get well. Um, I, I remember during my uh, th- junior year in medical school, th- when we started our, our rotations in the hospitals, my first rotation was internal medicine at University Hospital in Michigan, which was a tertiary center. And so the pa- patients were just as sick as they could be, and folks were just working as hard as they could to, to, uh, to, to help them. Uh, but I remember thinking this this was this was hard hard work and didn't seem to be gratifying for that immediate response that that clearly my personality and 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 brain desired, and so when you could 
when you could see a patient that you could clearly define what the problem was, you could uh, uh, undergo a surgical procedure that I, that I loved uh, being in the operating room and, 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 and being able to affect things and then note almost immediately that things were getting better and the patient was on the mend. That was really gratifying. Um, and, uh, and so when I, when I went to, uh, to Grady and to Emory uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, the summer of 79, I started in, in uh, general surgery, trauma surgery, uh, but then transferred over to orthopedics later that year. You know, I, I, in all of this narrative about your youth, the one word that didn't come up was politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and was that a was that uh, something that was talked about in your in your household or? Well, I grew up in the '60s, uh, and a lot going as, on. as you did. There's a lot going on. Yes, um, and uh, so you. I mean, if if you were breathing and alive, you it was hard not to be involved in in, in just recognizing that politics was incredibly important. Yeah, your governor was um, uh, George Romney. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Mitt's Mitt's dad, um, and, uh, um, and and so I had an interest, uh, but I always kind of put it on the back burner. I never uh, I thought maybe that's something I might do at some point. You in the weren't future. out there working on campaigns, running for class president. Uh-huh. Oh no! I did all of that. I uh, worked on. In fact, I worked on Don Regal's campaign uh-huh. in the state of Michigan, who switched from being a uh, switch parties. Yes. Uh, but uh, uh, but Don Regal was the first campaign that I remember working on. Although it may, I may have worked on a city campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my dad wasn't terribly involved, but my, and my folks were divorced when uh, uh, when in, in the mid '60s. Um, and uh, but my mom was active in in just listening to folks. She wasn't a campaign worker, but she was active in listening and in uh, providing a setting for people to exchange ideas. She was a uh, teacher. She was she taught everything from from uh, from nursery school to college. Uh, when 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 I was in high school, she uh, uh, she became a, a, a university professor, college professor at the University of Michigan Dearborn campus in mm-hmm. English. She taught English literature. Um, and uh, um, so she was. It was a she was a learned la- learned lady, a really inspiring uh, inspiring lady. Um, so when so. you got down, when you you decided orthopedics was mm-hmm. the way to go, you you became part of a, a of a a group that became one of the largest mm. orthopedics groups in the in the country, and this was. A relatively new concept, was it not at the time? Yeah, I was. I started my practice in 1984, solo practice. I was in solo practice for six years. I hung out a shingle in '84 to open an open office uh, in northern suburban Atlanta. I'd met my wife in residence. She she's an anesthesiologist, and we married in 1983, um, and uh, and and she got a job in that community, and and uh, um, I I just hung out the shingle and started practicing. Um, in 1990, I took on my first partner. Uh, another one followed a year or two later. Another one followed after that. And then, the the Atlanta market was, uh, from an insurance standpoint, went from what's called a stage two to a stage four level, stage four insurance market almost overnight in the early to mid 90s, where the insurance companies really had a whole lot of sway over what was going on um, in in healthcare. Uh, the HMO. Um, um, issue was was taken hold and, and insurance companies were kind of squeezing docks at that time from our perspective and so we and I, I and a number of other uh, orthopedists in the community realized that in order to 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 be able to survive um, and practice the kind of medicine that we believed was important we had to get big and so get big we we got and uh, so our practice which I think was at that time 
14 or 16 people uh, merged with two other practices that were of comparable size and then grew it into what uh, what became Resurgence Orthopedics, which, uh, as you mentioned, was one of the largest non-academic uh, uh, group practices of orthopedic surgeons in the country. You, you still weren't uh, involved in politics, mm-hmm. and this led you uh, into the politics of healthcare. Well, I, I actually, my entree to, to politics, where it really piqued my interest, was in the mid to late 80s when I was in solo practice. And I had joined the State Medical Society and was involved in, in, in organized medicine. And, and I remember getting a call from the State Medical Society to don my white coat and come down to the state capitol because we had a tort crisis in the state, a lawsuit abuse crisis in Georgia in the mid to late 80s. And, and um, um, they said, you've got to go down and lobby your, your representative and your senator. And I'd never set foot in the, in the state capitol until that time. And so I, I did dutifully responded to the call and went down to the state capitol and had uh, and I don't know how it is in, in many other states, uh, but but in in Georgia at that time, and you still can. You you just stand outside the chamber and you pass a note to one of the the aides, and they go in and find your state representative or your state senator, and they come out in the hallway and talk with you. I thought it was pretty neat. Um, and so I had two of the most delightful conversations with two wonderful individuals uh, who knew nothing about what I was talking about um, and uh, didn't have a clue what it took to practice medicine or to take care of patients. And it wasn't because they were bad folks. It's because they just that wasn't in their wheelhouse. That wasn't in their life experience. And um, they really didn't, didn't uh, um, uh, know the kinds of things that needed to be done. And I remember driving home from that experience thinking, well, this, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You got a lot of non-medical people making essentially medical decisions about what I could do for and with my patients. And so my wife had a similar experience about the same time, and so we began to get engaged in local politics. Uh, um, uh, and and over a few years, uh, some of our best friends became politicians and, and, and not necessarily our, our medical colleagues. I was asked to run for the state senate in 1996 in an in, in an open seat, one that I wasn't supposed to win, but we just outworked everybody and 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 won that one. Um, so I elected to the state senate in 1996, served eight years in the Georgia state senate, um, six of them in the minority, two in the majority. Uh, when I got down there in nine, after the 96 election, uh, Republicans had never held the majority in the state of Georgia in the in the state senate, um, and so. I worked with others to try to try to make that happen. That was an exciting, uh, exciting time. And you ended up as the as the leader. Ended up as the first Republican majority leader in the state Senate uh, in in Georgia history. I want to talk about your tenure as uh, as a legislator in uh, in Georgia, but I, I want to ask you about your orientation on medicine and how uh, that experience shaped that, because um, you. Uh, You've generally been uh, on the side of um, uh, deregulation, less government, health care, and so on. Uh, tell me, just give me a thumbnail sketch of your philosophy uh, on all of this. Yeah, it, it, this is really important because I, 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 I think it's really a shame that health care has become so politicized and that the 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 issues are uh, uh, seem to be everybody heads to their corners and comes out swinging. Um, I, I like to talk about the principles of health care because when you talk about the principles of health care, virtually every one of us uh, agrees on a constellation of principles. 
Um, so we all believe virtually that we ought to have a system that everybody has access to. We all believe that we ought to have a system that's affordable for everybody. We all believe that the, that the system, uh, healthcare system, ought to provide the highest quality of care. Those are kind of the three big ones that that folks, regardless of your ideological stripe, talk about. Yeah. Well, the first, the, the first, number one and number two are very important together because yeah. you know I always say I can I can I have access to a Maserati. It yeah. doesn't necessarily mean I can buy one. That's right. You know? Um, I add three to the access, affordability, and, and, and quality. Responsiveness, the system needs to be responsive to you as the patient. Uh, innovation, we need to incentivize innovation because I believe it's only through that innovation that we can, we can sustain the quality. And then choices, patients need choices. Patients need to be the ones that decide who's taking care of them, when they're being cared for, how, where, and the, and, and, and the like. So. Uh, accessibility, affordability, quality, responsiveness, innovation, and choices, and 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 most folks agree that that's that though that are a subset of that or some other principle that is consistent with those goals um, are are where we need to be. Now, I think it's important to talk about that because once we appreciate that we all want a similar end point. Um, then the discussion about how you get there can become, I believe can, it hasn't gotten there yet, but can become uh, more collegial and more productive and more positive in, its, uh, in, 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 in the way that it's carried out. Um, and so it, from my perspective as a, as, a, as a formerly practicing physician and as an individual who believes in those principles strongly, if you march down through the things that, that we want, it, it will take you. In an honest intellectual pursuit, it will take you to uh, alternatives, options for how to get to accomplish those 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 principles and those goals, um, and that's 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 where I believe that that. Uh, less government in, in healthcare is better than more government in healthcare. More decisions made by patients and docs are better than fewer pa- decisions made by patients and docs, et cetera. Yeah. So I want to ask about that. You you you're, uh, you belong to a, a medical group called the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Their their position was uh, uh, opposed to Medicare, Medicaid, government uh, programs. Those programs have served a lot of people. They're highly popular, sure. even to this day. Yeah. Um, if people should get what they want, uh, and if those programs, if people feel those programs are serving them well, uh, why why oppose them? Oh, I don't oppose them. Uh, I, 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 obviously, Medicare has been a been a uh, um, an incredible uh, uh, program that has provided for significant access for seniors uh, to to care and for affordability of care. Um, I would suggest, in some instances, it is it is it is uh, has uh, uh, been a challenge from a quality standpoint, and we're seeing more and more of that. Um, Medicaid has been a, an, a, an incredible lifeline for, for individuals and is a system that, uh, that needs to be improved um, and, and allowed for uh, those, the, the principles to hold true, so choices and, 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 and a greater amount of accessibility and, and quality in that system. So um, uh, there are the, the, where we find ourselves right now is in a very challenging situation from those programs because they're not financially sustainable. So for us as a society to, to, uh, to hide the fact in our public discussions that Medicare is going broke, which means that it can't provide the services that have been promised to, to seniors, 
um, that's where that, that's one of the areas I believe that's been harmed by this politicization of of healthcare because we ought to be able to have an honest conversation to say, look, Medicare in in its current financial model can't be sustained. Shouldn't we as a society address that? Shouldn't it's easier to address now than it will be when the crisis comes because a crisis is coming. Um, and how, and then the question becomes, how do you address that? And that's what we try to do both at the Ways and Means Committee and at the Budget Committee and then in my work, my short work at, uh, at HHS. Well, one of the answers you uh, offered on Medicaid was to block grant the program and give the states more latitude. Lots of concerns about that mm-hmm. because you limit, uh, you limit the growth in a way that could end up, as the CBO said, seeing millions of people lose their coverage. Well, you may or may not. CBO has, a, has I believe, has a flawed model, and I've talked about this at the Budget Committee, and I've talked about it um, uh, previously. But uh, nobody wants anybody to fall through the cracks. Everybody needs to have some sort of coverage, uh, I, I believe strongly, and have always believed that and, and stated that. The problem is that we now have a system that's not working for folks, so they're not able to get the kind of care oftentimes that they desire for themselves. We don't have a healthcare system. We've got systems. We've got Medicare and Medicaid and the individual market and the exchange market and the individual and small group market and the employer-sponsored market and the VA and the Indian Health Service. And we, ex- and we, we, we seem to expect that s- patients ought to be able to move seamlessly between those siloed systems and then so wonder why, should, it, why it doesn't Maybe work. I should agree on one single-payer system, and that would, and that would uh, allay a lot of those concerns. Um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a potential um, way to get folks covered. I would suggest to you that it would destroy the affordability and the accessibility and the quality and the responsiveness and the innovation and choices. So if you, if you think that those principles ought to be uh, our goals in terms of health care, then that's not where you'd go. Um, uh, so um, that, and, and that's why I think it's important to talk about those principles because you have to comp- – you have to there has to be a metric. We have to compare what we're, what systems we're going to to have as a society to some ideal, and those ideals are really important. I want to talk about this further. I'm interested in, uh, you know, we sort of stand alone in the absence of a kind of universal health care program among industrialized uh, countries, and uh, uh, so I, I want to ask about the comparison between the rest of the world and us. But I don't want to leave your tenure in the state Senate in, uh, in uh, Georgia. Uh, you, were, you were viewed as a, a, a kind of hard-ass guy <laughs> down there. I mean, I was a type uh, A surgeon. And uh, hardworking for sure, uh, but, but, but pretty partisan. And uh, you know that that is the, the the reviews that you got were that you were not particularly building bridges across the aisle. Um, is that a fair assessment? Uh, I don't I don't think so, especially at the state level. Um, at the state level, um, uh, Georgia's legislature is a forty. It's a citizen legislature. It's a forty day period of time, forty legislative days. And so, in order to get anything done, you've got to work with with folks, and that's important. Um, and and we were we were very successful in many of the things that we did. Uh, one of the things that frustrated me at the time when I when I entered the state senate was that that um, many folks in on the Republican side of the aisle in the state senate 
were uh, were very content to be in the minority. They, as I say, they'd never been in the majority, and so they had this minority mindset. Um, I, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me to to um, to sidetrack one's life and spend time in the political arena. Remember, I was still practicing medicine. Um, if you weren't there for a for a reason for a cause, and the cause was to try to bring about more conservative solutions to the kinds of challenges that the state of Georgia had. And so I paired with uh, with a couple other folks who felt the same way and were not content to be in the minority um, and and did what I thought was going to take just two years uh, as, as a type A surgeon trying to figure out how to take the majority in the state Senate. Turned out to be a six-year project, um, but uh, we worked together to, to, to try to crack that nut um, so that uh, the majority party set, sets the agenda, is able to, to, to uh, bring priority to those kinds of things that are, that are uh, so very, very important uh, um, to the citizens uh, and our constituents. So it, it, was, it was a great experience. I enjoyed immensely the, uh, the experience in the state Senate, the people that I worked with on both sides of the aisle, and, uh, um, uh, and, and the, uh, the kind of success that we had. One of the issues that uh, surfaced there is one that we're still grappling with today, and that was what to do about the flag of Georgia. It had a, uh, it featured a Confederate flag, uh, and you fell on the side of uh, keeping that. Ultimately, a bill was passed in which uh, you suggested having days to commemorate Confederate history on which the flag would, the old flag of, mm. of, of uh, Georgia would fly over the Capitol. This become a hugely controversial subject these days because of the statues of the confederacy and so on now i know uh and and what they mean to people yeah sure um any any regrets uh, about that i know that you're a northerner yeah. so it can't be that you're no i've got southern southern roots, I see. So, so it was your it was uh, your uh, but, it, but I, i'm i'm really proud of of what we did in solving that uh, when I was uh, uh, the majority leader, uh, I worked with Kasim Reed, who uh, became mayor of Atlanta. He was in the state senate at that time, uh, and others to to bring about a solution uh, to to the the uh, the real challenge that existed uh, uh, with with the state flag. And I think Georgia handled it with uh, with remarkable respect for all sides. Um, and uh, and you haven't heard the kind of rancor. Um, uh, since we since we brought that uh, that solution about uh, uh, in the early part of the last decade, do you think these symbols, though, uh, the Confederate flag and the Confederacy was fought over the issue of slavery? Um, do you not see how that symbol is deeply offensive to citizens of Georgia, many citizens of Georgia, and other places in this country? Sure, and that and that's why you've got to work together to solve it. Because as offensive as it is to some individuals, for other individuals, it, 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 is, it is incredibly important. And that's why we need to have a conversation. Uh, that's why this, 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 this demonization of folks uh, on either side of, of a particular issue um, and the inability, the seeming inability to have an, an adult conversation about how to solve the challenges that we face is, is really sad. And I see it increasing as opposed to decreasing. And so it, the... the um, 
um, the difficulty in 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 reaching um, uh, the kinds of solutions that are so important to do because what what citizens expect us to do is to solve problems um, uh, as as uh, as members uh, of uh, of the uh, um, the elected uh, um, service public service folks um, you ran for Congress yes. in 2004 so now you are no longer going to be a citizen legislator. Now you're going to be a full-time legislator for uh, the seat that Johnny Isaacson gave up to run for the old Newt Gingrich. Correct. That's right. Seat. Yeah. George. Now famously, everyone in America knows Georgia Six. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and tell me about that decision to give up the practice of medicine and run for Congress. When I was. Um when I became majority leader, um, uh, it, it took an, in, an inordinate amount of time, um, and uh, I was I was incredibly proud of the work that we had done. But it was time. I was fifty years old, uh, about to be fifty years old, and it was time to make a decision from from my standpoint, but also from my partner's standpoint, who called me in one day and in my medical practice and said, okay, Price, do you want to be a politician or a doctor? Because uh, um, you're, you're not pulling your weight around here. Um, doctors aren't like lawyers who send their, their colleagues to the legislature and hope that they pass some grand legislation that allows them to benefit the firm. Physicians want, want their colleagues there in the, in the practice uh, uh, um, contributing. And so at, at the good Lord answers all prayers, and he did mine, and that was to open up the opportunity for the, for the race uh, for Congress in 2004. Um, and it was a very hotly contested primary. It was a seven-way primary in a, in a as you mentioned, a, a Johnny Isaacson's district, a very Republican district at that time. It's changed a bit because of redistricting. Um, but we were uh, uh, we we ran a very competitive race, and we're very very um, um, honored and privileged, and 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 it was a it was a very exciting time to be able to win a race, win a seat uh, for the United States House of Representatives. And over time, you you you've uh, flirted with races for the Senate, for governor, for a majority leader in the uh, in the House. Um, why? I, I think that when when one engages in 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 public service that it's important to to try to find where one can serve best um, and and sometimes you know that in your heart and you're able to chart that course um, and and sometimes that's a course that others will determine uh, where where you can best serve and so that's what I always asked folks when I when I got to Congress I asked the then speaker and then the then majority leader and the and the majority whip uh, um, uh, at that time where where can I best serve um, what what where where can I best be uh, able to help solve uh, the the many of the challenges that we have, and so at each step that the, in the in the process that I went through, whether it was to uh, to be chairman of the Republican Study Committee, whether it was to be chair of the Republican Policy Committee, or whether it was to be chair of the House Budget Committee, each of those were places that my colleagues at that time said. Uh, well, Tom, we think that this is probably uh, the the best place for you to serve at this point. Um, and 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 I would I, it was incredibly gratifying to be able to help uh, uh, try to 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 fashion policy and fashion a course that that was hopefully uh, helping to solve uh, many of the challenges that we have. You um, uh, you were obviously there when uh, uh, I remember painfully well when Republicans took. The House in 2010, yeah. the last time there was a big wave. There may be another one coming. I sort of remember what it's like to know and <laughs> what it felt like when I when I saw the wave coming. And at that time, um, 
you uh, said you were pr- uh, proud to join fellow conservatives in an effort to beat back a, a, a vile liberal agenda. What would you mean by that? Well, I don't remember that quote, but I suspect I was referring primarily to the ACA, to Obamacare. Um, I, I really felt, and I wrote at the time, and I spoke at the time, and I did, uh, it wasn't a podcast, but it was whatever social media communication we could, about the, the, the harm that I felt that that bill was going to do to, to American health care. Um, and it wasn't the accessibility challenge, which was, was some of which was addressed by, by the ACA. Uh, well, 20, 20 million people. I mean, it, it cut almost in half the number of the percentage of people uninsured. Yeah, it's probably a little less than that because there were some people who transferred over to the exchange market and to to uh, uh, to Medicaid who were covered in other ways. But but uh, pl- plus or minus, you're 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 right. It still left, however, twenty eight million individuals uninsured. And what it did was increase deductibles and increase premiums for so many individuals in that individual and small group market, that exchange market, that when I went home and talked to my former colleagues, they would share with me stories of patients and their fam and the, and their parents children and their parents crying in the waiting room because they, they, they weren't able to get the kind of care that they needed because they couldn't afford the deductible. So they had coverage, but many of them didn't have care. But in 2010, the ACA wasn't even in, it hadn't even been executed yet. So that couldn't have been what you were referring to. Oh, it was you... precisely what I was referring to, because if you know how healthcare works and you know how the system works and you know the challenges that exist and, and when you push on something where it, where it pokes out somewhere else, this was all very predictable. And, and, and I talked about so it. So you Many were of us predicting that this would happen. Many of us talked about it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, uh, and and so the I, I felt that it was was an affront to to where those decisions ought to be made, and clearly the the, the people who voted in those whatever it was I think eighty three districts that that elected new Republicans in in, in that year felt the same way, and and uh, and the majority was taken back. Now uh, you know I, I will tell you just in the spirit of. Um, in the spirit of the dialogue that you talked about at, at the beginning, um, you know, I've, when I travel around the country, I meet people all the time who say, who come up with tears in their eyes because they didn't have health care. They got health care. I met a young guy on the street yeah. here who uh, had tears in his eyes, baseball cap, no hair. Uh, he was in his late 20s. He uh, got coverage through the ACA. And he had. It turns out he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he felt that. Sure. The, and and I and I come across that all the time. Twenty million people with coverage who wouldn't have had coverage. Um, uh, is that vile? I mean, it seems to me that that's responsive to what is real human need, and that any society certainly. You and I both love this country, sure. and. Shouldn't a shouldn't a uh, strong, humane, and very and wealthy country, the wealthiest in the world, uh, be able to assure its citizens that they will they can get coverage and that they don't have to live in in fear of either bankruptcy or uh, not having health care and being like that young man, potentially losing their life because they couldn't access the health care they needed. Yeah, absolutely. But it can be done in a way that that respects the principles that I talked about. 
So for, for that individual, it, that may be working. And I would suggest that from a voluntary standpoint, that if he wants to remain on that program, that he ought to be able to do so. But we as a society are failing 28 million individuals right now who don't have coverage, and we're failing many of those who have coverage in a system that they can't afford to get the treatment or a system that doesn't allow them to see the doctor or access the kind of health care that they want. So I think it's important, again, for us to step back as uh, for individuals who are now in the policymaking arena to step back and say, what, what is it that we could do that would actually allow our society to have a health care system that respects those principles? Nobody wants anybody to, 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 to not have, individuals who know health care and know what needs to be done, nobody wants ind individuals not to have coverage. We want everybody to have coverage. Having everybody have coverage is, is, is imperative at this point. There are ways to do it, I believe, that would allow those principles to be upheld. That is, be affordable, accessible, have the highest quality and choices for patients. You know, I, um, I had my own experience with the healthcare system uh, when I was a young newspaper reporter. I've talked about this before here, but my daughter, Lauren, now 37, when she was seven months old, was born. Uh, when she was seven months old, my wife found her blue and limp in her crib. Uh, we thought mm. she had died. Mm. We rushed her to the hospital. We saw her have a seizure. They said it's probably from fever. And uh, a month later, we were released, and she was still having 10 seizures a day. And uh, the treatment, we, we had insurance. Uh, the insurance didn't cover medications uh, and some of the out, uh, second opinions that mm -hmm. we needed or wanted. Um, but the medications were essential. And uh, we almost went bankrupt mm -hmm. because ultimately the medications were costing us $1,000 a month out of pocket. I wasn't making I was probably making forty thousand dollars a year um, so that was not that was 20 30 years right. ago uh, and um, to me that's not a working healthcare system no you're right I cried the night the ACA passed because I knew there were families that wouldn't have to go through what my uh, family went through and no family should have to go through that should they no absolutely not but but there are solutions that, that, that have a respect and would adhere to those principles that I mentioned and discussed that 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 um, are much more positive and much more productive and have at the core of who decides. The real question is who decides. And we can have a system where the government decides. There's no doubt about it. Well, government didn't but, decide that. That was decided by an insurance company. And I couldn't change insurance because I had a pre-existing, we had a pre-existing sure. condition, which no longer applies because of the Affordable Care Act. Right. But, but you, that statement that you just made presumes that, that the decision makers can only be government or insurance. And I would take issue with that. Uh, the fact of the matter is you can have a, have a system that is positive, productive, has, ever, have, has everybody covered, uh, does so in a way that's affordable and accessible and continues to have quality health care and choices for patients that has patients in charge of, of the system. And that's incredibly important because then the system moves in the direction that it ought to move. And that's not the direction that David Axelrod wants to move or Tom Price wants to move or anybody else wants it to move. It moves in the direction of the system that patients want it to move. Well, pay, uh, if you look at polling now, the majority of Americans support the Affordable Care Act. So They support coverage, yeah. No, they support the Affordable Care Act. They're asked to rate the Affordable Care Act, and a majority of Americans support it. But let me ask you a question on this issue of the $28 because I agree with you it would be great to get more people covered. 
you know, there are two ways to do it under the Affordable Care Act. One would be to expand Medicare, Medicaid coverage to the states that aren't covering it. I think more and more states are going to do that, to be honest with you. Um, but the second is to expand participation in these exchanges. Um, you guys, and I want to talk to you about uh, your uh, tenure as uh, HHS secretary, and, but you, um, you cut the budget for uh, marketing of the ACA by 90%. Uh, that doesn't seem like a good plan to get more people uh, to participate. Amazingly, the same number of, uh, virtually the same number of people signed up this year as mm -hmm. last, despite the fact that the budget was cut by 90%. Uh, but so what that you, seemed like a strategy. What would you conclude from that? I would conclude that if you had invested more uh, in in the marketing and, and 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 making accessible information about the ACA, that millions more people would have signed up. That's an illogical conclusion. If if the amount of money that was spent last year got the, virtually the same number of individuals insured in on the exchanges as did this year, but we but was spent ten percent of what was spent Ex last year, then then it, the, the a conclusion could be reached that would say there was too much money being spent no, last year. But we should point out also the the the, the days to uh, sign up were cut. The number of days to sign up were cut in half as well. I, I think what's Ill, it's Ill, illogical to suggest that if you cut the sign up dates in half and you cut the marketing budget by ninety percent, that the result yields exactly what it would have yielded if you had actually had a longer sign-up period and invested more money in it. And it just feels as if, for ideological reasons, that there was an effort to try and depress uh, the number of people no, who signed up. Well, it, the the, the sign-up time period, we were trying to harmonize with Medicare. So the time period that, that we defined for the ACA when I was there for that, that short period of time was the same time period for sign-up for, for Medicare. It works extremely well for Medicare, and we wanted to harmonize the two for, for uh, ease of, of uh, administration. Um, but again, the premise to your question is that the ACA is the be-all and the end-all, and that's the direction that we ought to be heading, when in fact uh, the, the, the number of, of plans on the exchanges is decreasing. The number of individuals who have a choice of the type of plan that they want are decreasing. The premiums continue to escalate, and the deductibles for many individuals are, are through the roof, and therefore, again, they have coverage, but they don't have well, care. Well, one of the reasons the, the number of... Uh of insurance choices has decreased is that there's been all this uncertainty about whether the transitional uh, subsidies that have been promised to the insurance companies uh, to stabilize these markets would be provided, and they haven't been provided. So uh, it's hard, as you know, you're a businessman, among other sure. things, to plan if you don't have no, absolutely. if you don't have certainty. I, um, I, I don't don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the system that we have right now is the system that 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 is working ideally for folks. It's why I've spent the last twenty plus years trying to make certain that that we were moving in 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 a better direction for folks. Again, that was ad, adherent to those principles that I talked about. For well, patients. do you think it's working better? Do you think it was working better in two thousand and eight and nine before the passage of the Affordable I think Care? It depends on who you're talking about. If you're talking about the individuals who didn't have access to care at that time and gained access on the exchanges, then no. 
It, it wasn't working better in 2008. If you're talking about the folks in the individual and small group market who aren't eligible for uh, for the exchange because of, of their income or whatever, um, and then they've been subjected to a system that has significantly increased their premiums and deductibles so that they are now unable to, prov- to provide the care that their family needs because of those price increases, then it's working worse for them. And that's why I think that we need to talk about an array of solutions that is respectful of individuals, that puts patients in the driver's seat as opposed to insurance companies or government. Um, let me ask you about your tenure. Yeah. And, and uh, it seemed like a, a, a bit of an adventure to be the HHS secretary in this administration uh, under this president. Um, I remember uh, how, uh, my, how hard you were to decommission the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the House passed such a bill. Uh, you guys had a celebration in the, and I think you were right, standing right by the president at the time, uh, in the Rose Garden at the White House. Uh, and not very long after, the president would, met with a group, I think, of, the, of senators, and he described the House bill that he celebrated as mean. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I wonder what Tom Price thinks about that having uh, worked to pass this bill. And how do you function uh, like that in an environment in which you uh, charge up San Juan Hill and the general pushes you down to the foothill again? Yeah, we were simply trying to find solutions. That's what we were trying to do from from my office's standpoint. But I'll tell you what I was so incredibly um, honored and thrilled about. Uh, and that was uh, to to be able for for uh, albeit a short time, but to be able to be at the helm of of an organization with eighty thousand uh, employees, eighty thousand individuals committed to the work that they're doing all across the world. Um, HHS uh, it, it, people know that it's a department in government, but they don't, what they don't many of them don't know is that it has twenty seven agencies and divisions beneath it, including the iconic institutions of healthcare that we have in this nation. So whether it's NIH or the CDC or CMS or SAMHSA or the or um, uh, the FDA. All of those are within and, and, and under uh, HHS. So one of the things that I got the opportunity to do was to visit every one of those agencies and, and, and divisions and thank the folks for the work that they're doing because so many of them are doing incredible work that is assisting in, in, in increasing not just the quality of, of care that's being able to be provided in this nation, but the quality of life that, that exists uh, uh, in, in this country. And they aspire to, to uh, improve that. So, for example, the folks that were on the front lines of the Ebola crisis across the ocean and far away for many folks, but literally a plane flight away, from the United States, the folks that were on the front lines of that and assisted in making certain that that was as it was a terrible event, there's no doubt about it, but that we solved that crisis as rapidly as possible. Those are American citizens, many of them, and employees of the CDC and the NIH. It was incredibly inspiring, and the commitment that they have to to the work that they do was just remarkably fulfilling. I started something called uh, a weekly uh, a blurb called uh, I am HHS. Um, to, to identify individuals within the department who, who proudly stood up and told their story, uh, kind of the short version of, of, of what you walked through with me early in this, uh, in this conversation about how they ended up at HHS. What was their dream? What was their goal? Um, 
So many of the stories are incredibly inspiring by these people who literally have committed their lives to help you and me and every single person, not just in this nation, but around the world, be able to have high quality I remember. I remember the Ebola crisis well, and I remember that there was a restiveness on your side of the aisle about the way it was being handled. But I agree with you that it was handled very well by healthcare oh, incredible. professionals. Hey, let me ask you one other question related to this, and then I want to ask you about the end of your tenure uh, at HHS because it seems kind of ironic in light of current events. Um, uh, one, uh, uh, one question that's come up is uh, over the t- course of your uh, career in public life is uh, exactly what your view is of uh, mandatory vaccinations for things like measles and other mm. common uh, diseases, um, because you mentioned the CDC. I mean, one way we control epidemics is through vaccinations. Uh, why Why is the presumption that you oppose mandatory uh, vaccinations? And there was some talk of this while you were HHS secretary. Yeah, um, uh, th- this is a peculiar one, frankly, because um, I, th- I think that it's important. Vaccinations are incredibly important. <laughs> Obviously, vaccinations have, have uh, uh, in, in many, many ways um, uh, uh, decreased the hum- human suffering in, 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 uh, in remarkable instances. Uh, I, I've, I was vac- had vaccinations myself for polio and for, uh, uh, for uh, smallpox, and I've continued to take vaccinations for 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 diseases that are are uh, uh, where, where we're discovering new new uh, ways to it's not just important for you it's, it's important absolutely. for everybody who you were exposed to who absolutely. also didn't get those diseases absolutely without a doubt so should um, they those not be mandated the, so the question comes when when you take it to the extreme and that's what folks in the in the political arena like to do they like to take it to the extreme that's what the media likes to do they like to take it to the extreme and 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 so they say well are you gonna are you gonna require everybody uh, and and so the, the 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 next question there is if somebody doesn't receive a vaccine or doesn't uh, submit themselves to a vaccine that society believes is appropriate, then what are you going to do? And that's an important question. What are you going to do? So it gets to that question that I mentioned earlier. Who decides? I believe that through education and through 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 uh, uh, the healthcare system, that the vast majority of individuals, if not all individuals, will say that yes, certain vaccines are appropriate and they they're necessary. But what are we going to do as a society when a parent says, "No, I'm not going. To, I don't want my child to have that." Well, there have to be consequences for that for 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 that decision. One, are we going to allow them to make that decision? And I think that probably society believes it's appropriate to allow them to make that decision. Two, what happens if they say, in the very, very slim instances when they do, no, I don't want my child to have that, then the consequence of that is that that child can't attend public education. That's a consequence of that decision. Now, the alternative is to say, no, the state controls that child and, and will, over the parents' wishes and desires and, 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 and commitment, not allow that to happen. And then are we going to jail the parent? Is that what we're going to do? So, so that those are, those are pivotal questions, but they are at the margins. They're this at the this comes. It's, it's, there's an, it reminds me of the ACA debate and the the, the uh, you know the ongoing debate. You guys, uh, you were gone by the time the individual mandate was mm-hmm. uh, removed. But um, you know, 
we talk about personal responsibility, and what you're saying sure. is parents have a responsibility. Yeah, absolutely, here without a doubt. And and if we're Not doing our job to make sure that their kids aren't exposing other right. kids to potential. And uh, if we're doing our job as a society and as a healthcare system, then all parents would say, "Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense," and that's what I'm going to do. In a similar vein, isn't there a personal responsibility to get insurance coverage? Uh, so that you don't end up on the doorstep of emergency rooms yeah. like the ones your father Absolutely. used to uh, run and, and, and run up the costs for hospitals. And we've Absolutely. seen hospitals, particularly in rural areas, really suffering uh, as a result of uncompensated care. Sure. That's personal responsibility, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, yeah. And that's why I mentioned to you that, that, that I believe everybody needs health coverage. But if people, but but, if people choose not to take it, it's not just themselves they're harming. That's right. It's the it's it's the system and society as a whole. That's right. And so in 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 the bill that I worked on for almost a decade in the United States House of Representatives, the Empowering Patients First Act, what we the way that we addressed that was if you accessed the system and you didn't have health coverage, then you defaulted into whatever the next coverage policy was that was up in a system that was set up. Now, it never it hadn't happened. Uh, and so the, the the specifics of how that works uh, uh, aren't existent, but that's that's the way that I would address it. In fact, I, I I I talked to some friends on the other side of the aisle, on the Democratic side of the aisle, during the process of of talking about uh, the ACA and Obamacare when it was coming through, saying that look, if 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 you all considered requiring individuals to have health coverage. But let them, let the individual be the one that determines what that health coverage is and what's right for them, as opposed to saying you have to have health coverage and this is what you must purchase, then you might get some some significant support on this side of the aisle, on my side of the aisle. Because instead of saying a person has to have health coverage and 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 they're the ones that select it. You're they saying said, by you, prescribing you, what should be in that health coverage? Yeah, is that what you're saying? What you're saying is everybody has to own a car and it has to be a black Buick. That's that. That's what. No, that's you're what the saying everybody has to own a car, and it has to have certain safety features, or it has to have certain um, uh, anti-pollution features, or it has to have certain basic uh, accoutrements that assure that that car isn't going to run off the road and hit somebody on the uh, on the sidewalk. Great point, and you use the word basic, and that's important because then the question is who decides what basic is. Mm-hmm. And that's where I would suggest to you that the right person to decide what basic is for themselves is themselves and not the federal government. And that's where we end up in the in, in these challenges. Yeah. I, I you know the 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 problem I see, Tom, is that um, uh, this is a prescription for leading to essentially worthless healthcare policies. Why that, would people that, buy that, worthless that, healthcare policies? Because they think they're being covered. And because well, that, they're told they're being covered. And because let's, people let's, and because people don't confront don't necessarily confront all the exigencies until they uh, they are real in their lives. That's the way it's always been with healthcare. You don't really the why why do kids not uh, join the healthcare system? Well, then, because they feel invulnerable and until they uh, have a fall off a second floor or get hit by a car or fall on their bike on their head and have neurological damage and then they have no uh, coverage. So, so uh, would, it's not just for their protection, it's you, for the protection of everyone else. If you believe that, then you, and, and, I, and I believe that, what you said, um, then why wouldn't your solution be a high deductible catastrophic plan for everybody? 
Well, instead of a soup to nuts health coverage plan, which many of the young immortals uh, and millennials don't believe they need, therefore they don't think it's cost worthy for them to do so. Because therefore they don't buy it. Be, In be, fact, they'd rather pay because, a penalty to the federal government so that they don't have to buy coverage. Because basic, basic preventive care can lower costs and avert catastrophes, and that's important. And it can, but who ought to be making that decision? That's the question, David. Yeah. Well, we, we will agree to disagree <laughs> because I, I, I want to empower patients. I don't want to abandon them on the false altar of choices that don't really exist. Uh, we and don't, I think that's I, I wouldn't, and, and I wouldn't that's abandon them. I wouldn't abandon them and have never proposed abandoning them. Let, let me ask you about the way your tenure ended because you were— that, Wait, this is important. Yes. This is important. I spent over 20 years taking care of patients. Mm-hmm. Never abandoned a single patient. Saw every single patient that ever walked through my doors. Medicaid either in the patients o- as well. Either in the office or in the hospital. Never asked anybody what their coverage was, ever. Mm-hmm. Physicians and individuals who provide care in this country are committed to their patients. Yes. And that's why it's so important to allow those individuals to do what they believe to be most appropriate See, for I would their think patients. See, I would think that you would want that it would be in the interest of the whole system if those patients walked in with coverage. It is, and that's why I proposed the Empowering Patients First Act (laughs) for a decade. (laughs) All right. Let me just ask you this, because I'd be remiss if I didn't. Uh, At least the the suggestion when you left was that it was around uh, your use of of charter planes and that you'd run up quite a a large sum, I think a million dollars for the Planes was uh, the the number that was thrown a- around, and uh, there was a sense that you were eased out of your job because of it. What do you think now when you see the controversies surrounding Scott Pruitt, Ryan Zinke, and others who have been accused of the very same thing, and yet they're getting full support? Yeah, it was it was an incredible privilege to serve in the cabinet uh, of of uh, of this president, of any president. Um, and uh, the honor that I had of being there for, even though it was a very short time of, of serving with those individuals at HHS, uh, will, will, uh, will always be a highlight of my life. Well, let me just say this. You may be out of politics, but you haven't lost your chops there. <laughs> that, that, I know a stiff arm when I get one, but uh, I just I, I had to ask because the irony um, seems pretty pretty thick, but you're, you're, a, you're a good sport to be here, and... Um, to not just to sit with me, but to have a discussion about healthcare with Kate Baker from yeah, look forward the to Dean it. of the Harris School, yeah. a, a very eminent healthcare economist. So, uh, Tom Price, it's it's good to see you, and I and I very much appreciate the chat. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, visit cnn.com/podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.